0: Bone Knowing, A True Story of Coming to Life in the Face of Impending Loss Chapter 31, Returning to Life After Tom, Day 1 At 4 a.m. I'm awake out of habit, sickly scared. This is the first official day of my family's new constellation, and I'm the only grown-up. The bubble of suspended time I've been in with Tom and all the others witnessing his dying has been pierced by the concept of survival. Party's over, the guest of honor has departed. Days of sitting Shiva have already happened before he died. Now it's time to secure my job, look for a rental before we get the foreclosure boot, and pay down the stack of bills mounting on the kitchen counter. Thinking of work causes a neon-yellow sticky note to surface from the back file of my memory. It reads, November 6th. That would be today. The mandatory all-day training at hospice was announced at work about six months ago, when news went out that we'd be merging with the hospital. Reminder notices circulated regularly. Mark your calendars, November 6th. It's that kind of mandatory. Change was heavy in the air when I took my maternity leave just 10 weeks ago. Missing this meeting might give them reason to change or fill my position. I get up and start pumping a day's supply of milk, probably loading it chock full of the adrenaline pinging in my stomach. River is awake and ready to jump Grampy by seven. My heartstrings pull taut against mother instincts as I tell him I'm going to a meeting today. Gone is another of my fantasies. There will be no huddling up with my babies at home for at least a week before we reemerge as a new family unit. Surviving seems out of sync with such notions. The comfort I fall back on is knowing for a few more days anyway my children will have loving grandparents around the clock while I get my feet on the ground. The conference room at Hospice House is full to capacity with every employee I know and many I don't. I'm late with a new milk stain on my left nipple. What I would give for a vest, or better yet, a cloak of invisibility. Familiar faces register the changes. A baby born and a husband died. The former is obvious, as I've deflated over 40 pounds since I left for my maternity leave. The latter they know because Tom's name, like Larissa's and so many others, is now a smudge mark on the dry erase board under the heading of patients. He's graduated to the deceased lists. something I don't want to see. There lies the problem. He was their patient, and I am their co-worker. Not a good mix. Normally, families receive an abundance of support with hospice both before and after the death. I have kept ours bare bones, worrying it would impact the relationships on the job. Coworkers might not trust that I could do my job. They'd have to watch their death humor, just in case I was in my cubicle. The tension would be unbearable. If only I could skip the awkwardness of being the young widow so easy to pity. I'm frozen in the doorway. My legs want to move in reverse, taking me out the door and home to bed. Images of homelessness counter the impulse and win out with a movement deeper into the room. As I scan for an empty chair, I lock into Jill's soft eyes. She's the kind of nurse every patient hopes for, abounding compassion, warm hands, and a good sense of humor. Moving toward me with her arms wide, she takes me in. The survival armor I wear to get by gives. My breath catches, making a ticking noise at the back of my throat as it disperses into Jill's soft shoulder. She rocks side to side. In this moment, it would be so easy to melt the hard places, surrender, drown, and hopefully reemerge like the phoenix. Then. Through a fat tear, I see the facilitator glance at his watch and whisper something to the co facilitator. Abruptly, I pull back and smile a thank you, composing my quasi melted body into a chair. A few minutes into the talk, the co facilitator sneaks over to me. Are you sure you want to stay? She asks, cupping a hand to my ear. You really don't have to be here, you know. I'm fine, I smile back now on a tangent of worry about why I don't need to be here. Bosswoman Carol isn't at the meeting, so no reassurance to be gained. At lunch, I use the phone in the library and call her. No answer. I leave an enthusiastic message about being ready to come back. After the meeting, I make calls at home from Tom's desk while Mom and Dad are still out with the kids. I'm careful not to move anything from the positions he left them in. Carol calls back and suggests I take some time with the kids. Next week is soon enough. I'll set something up. Introduce you to the big boss, she reassures. Her usual wit and mellow tone calm the paranoid tangent I veered off on. Return to work. One to-do item checked. Next item. Plan Memorial. I call the Elks Lodge in Hollister, following through on a reservation for a function. I had left on the answering machine last week, with a guesstimate of next Sunday, the 16th. No one called back because I didn't leave a number. I'd get to it once I had a sure date." "'Yeah?' An old guy with a gruff voice answers on the first ring. I picture a row of Harleys outside and a line of leather-vested bikers sitting at the bar inside. My request might be completely out of line." Hi, um, I called about a week ago about a function next Sunday. Yeah, glad you called back. We didn't have a number for you. The hall's available on the 16th, you haven't a party? Kind of, more like a celebration of life, a memorial service for my husband. Is that possible? Uh, hang on, ma'am. The man hesitates, and I hear his hand cover the phone, a muffling of voices and then he stumbles through a reply. Yeah, uh, I guess so. Well, let me tell you, though, it certainly isn't our usual gig. Mind if I ask why here? Somewhere in his reply I get a memory flash. This is the same place we attended Tom's 30th class reunion. I'm not far off with the Harleys. If memory serves correct, the interior's dark and the lodge is in an awkward location out on the periphery of the town by a landing strip. I too wonder why Tom picked it. Well, he requested it. He was compromising, I say. Don't get me wrong, he was trying to make it easy for his family to attend, without the Catholic part. As I explain, the anger I felt when I told Mike of Tom's wishes flares up. He, acting as a spokesman for the family, Warn me that without the church, the family might not come. I know it sounds crazy, he had said with his best intentions, but it's a Catholic thing. Any chance you'll reconsider? It had been all I could do to quip, no, and get off the line before I dumped a heap of junk that wasn't mine to unload. As I remember this conversation from last week, I begin to understand exactly why it has to be at the Elks Lodge. It is Tom's last way to challenge his family to question the beef behind the rituals they've assumed. He was never interested in converting anyone, only expanding. A local family? The man's voice brings me back. Yeah, a Sanchez family. Tom Sanchez is, I mean, was, my husband, I answer. Tommy Sanchez, no kidding. God, I'm so sorry. Tommy Sanchez. What a nice kid. Used to work at the grocery store in the corner. His family owned it, I think, he says, dating himself as a town elder. Yep, that's the guy. Only he was 52. No kidding. Seems unfair, doesn't it? He says, more to himself than me. I guess, I say, not wanting to go where this is headed. He coughs, returning to the task at hand. What did you have in mind for the funeral? Oh, not a funeral. It would be a memorial. I'd make an open invitation for people to come and share memories of Tom. I clarify. Would, uh, would the body be here? He sounds queasy, just considering it. Oh, no. Well, actually, if I get him back in time, I wanted to bring the ashes. In an urn or something. Unless you're not good with that. No, I'm sure it'll be okay. He sounds relieved. We talk logistics, table set up, TV monitor to show the videos, cash bar, buffalo wings and the like. It's a go for next Sunday. By the time we finish the call, old Lance and I are buds. I'm thanking Tom out loud for a good plan when I hear my parents drive in with the kids. Returning his pen to the exact angle I found it, I rise and welcome home my two little bundles of living hope. Chapter 32 Guardian Angel After Tom, Days 2 through 4. Friday is a freebie permission to enjoy the freedom of unencumbered time before my parents leave and I delve into a busy work schedule. We go out to breakfast at Nancy's Cafe and stroll the full length of Del Monte Beach. In the evening, Dad and I hike up to the lookout point with Oceana bundled in her sling. We watch the sun melt into the sea. I tell him how grateful I am for all that has happened. Not that Tom died. A while back, I decided his dying wasn't a God issue. No blame there. Rather, it is how Tom's drawn-out death brought both he and I to life that has me praising the whole experience. Dad doesn't say much. He's a nodder, and that works for me. It definitely hasn't been all roses, I say. More that it's beyond being sad or happy, bad or good. Someday... Some day I'll weave all of this together. Paintings, poetry, who knows. Come Saturday, I'm homesick, dreading Mom and Dad's departure. See you soon. Maybe we'll come for Christmas, I say, hugging each of them with River on my hip. I'm careful not to say goodbye, as if the word could break my boy. More likely, it could break me. The door closes behind them and it feels like a vacuum, no buffer. There is so much to plan. The memorial, the job, the home, and the future I've been pacing in wait for. I'm tempted to fill this naked void with the plans, except I'm suddenly depleted of all energy. The children and I nestle into bed and I put on 101 Dalmatians. All three of us are out cold before it's over. At 4 a.m., I turn off the TV and slip fluidly into dreams until 7, when River wakes me. Daddy came to visit again. Really? I ask, genuinely interested in what he experiences. What did he say? You're silly, Mama. He can't talk, he says, looking at me like I'm some kind of dimwit. What do you mean? Mama! He says, exasperated, like that. He points to the ceiling light. Oh, I get it. He looks like a light. How do you know it's him? I genuinely want to know. Because it is, he says, running out of the room, tired of spelling out simple concepts to a grown up. In truth, I'm a little disappointed not to be getting any signs myself, as promised. I run through dream scenes of the night. No Tom. Maybe tonight. Once Oceana has nursed and we are all dressed, I suggest we walk to the corner market for cinnamon rolls and the Sunday paper. River is ecstatic. It's been over a month since he's been to Mal's. Skipping ahead down the sidewalk, he announces names of the neighbors, orienting me to the ritual being transferred over to me from Tom. At Mel's, River announces to the guy behind the counter that his daddy died. "'Sorry to hear that, little guy,' the storekeeper consoles, coming around to the front and squatting down at eye level. His hair and eyes are both sandy brown. With a right haircut, he'd qualify as attractive. River looks ready to climb up onto his lap. I'm mortified. "'We'll take two cinnamon rolls and a paper.' I cut in, before one of us does something inappropriate. Sure thing. He understands. Two cinnamon rolls coming up. He taps the register. I'm relieved he charges me full price. At home, I set the baby in her swing, make myself some coffee, and river a sippy cup of rice milk. Cinnamon rolls in hand, we settle onto the couch. Now you read the funnies like Daddy he instructs as he unravels his cinnamon roll into a long road of pastry. Okay. I concur, feeling the importance of this first with River and without Tom. The paper isn't my gig, so I flounder around the sections, getting distracted in search of the funnies. In my search, I find Tom. Not like I didn't know his obituary would be printed. It's just I've been checking the paper daily since Wednesday and found nothing. I was planning to call tomorrow and see why they hadn't run it after I went to such lengths to get it to them the morning of Tom's death. As I stare at the handsome picture taken just after our wedding four years ago, I can't believe it's been just a week since the awkward scene at the photography store where I had it printed. The clerk had told me the turnaround time would be a week because I didn't have the negative. Uncharacteristically, I had started to cry. You don't understand, I had said. It's for, my, it's for my husband's obituary. Oh, I'm sorry, miss, he had frowned. No, he's, he's not dead yet, I denounced, attempting to defer the pity. It only confused him more. I remember the clerk called over his supervisor, the fixer of all problems, and he had asked confidently, What can I help you with, miss? Either I look especially young or my widowhood was showing prematurely. No one has called me miss since high school. Please, I had said, I need this picture copied by tomorrow, maybe the day after. I can't wait a week. It's for my husband's obituary. He's dying, maybe even dead by the time I get home. The supervisor's face had turned red, and then mine did, too, sympathetically. Sure, we can do that for you, ma'am. No problem. Why don't you get home? We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks. I had picked up the picture the next day and sat down to write a customized obituary. Doing so reminded me of who I was losing before he was gone. If the obituary didn't capture at least the flavor of his vivacious spirit, The photo would pick up the slack. The envelope had sat by the phone, ready to go, once Tom did. It went out with Wednesday's mail, and here it is, five days later, making his debut in the Sunday paper. "'You sly dog,' I say aloud, remembering back to when Tom told me he'd communicate via the newspaper. By God, he has, despite my insistence that it wouldn't be a reliable method. "'What, dog, mama?' "'River muffles through a mouth of cinnamon roll "'as he pulls the paper aside to see what I'm talking about. "'No, dog, River. It's Daddy's picture. "'Just waiting for us in a Sunday paper. "'Here's a little story about him.' "'Read it, Mama,' he begs. "'I do, slowly, savoring the one-time deal of an obituary. "'Now funnies,' River demands the moment I'm done. We open to the comics. River looks for his favorite. Look, Mama, got the angels! There, in one frame comic, was a woman who was waving goodbye to her son and daughter as they went out to play. She was looking up with a confident smile at two angels hovering above the children. Out of her mouth came the words, Have a good day! Over her head, a thought bubble read, All of you... Hmm and the name Thomas means twins, two angels, I think out loud. Looks like Daddy found a way to let us know he's officially you and your sister's guardian angel, River. I pop off the couch and get a pair of scissors to cut out both his obituary and the comic. I'll frame them together to remind me of the possible connections between the living and the dead, should I ever doubt them. Returning to the couch, I feel close to Tom as if he's been sitting with us, anticipating the joy we'd feel in that simple ritual. River's delight is contagious, and I find myself laughing over silly comics that had never before even lifted the corners of my mouth. Thanks, I whisper to the empty side of the couch. Chapter 33 Ashes to Ashes After Tom Day 7 All morning I clean like a maniac to the tunes of UB-40. If it wasn't for tending children, I might just raise the roof with my swirling energy. The juicer is packed up for storage, and Tom's slew of supplements and medications are stashed away on a high shelf for now. I've gone through what is left in his closet after Eliza and Jessica picked out what they wanted and then made a stack to give away and one to keep. He specifically asked me to give his sneakers and a couple outfits to Jerome, a homeless guy who comes by every so often to wash our car windows. I've got them packed and labeled Jerome, as well as Tom's umpiring gear boxed up for donation to the local officiating association. The mask and strike ball counter stays aside for River. They're reminders of the many games he has watched his daddy officiate, and how special he felt when the blue came off the diamond between innings and handed him the counter through the fence. People call and leave kind messages, only I'm too occupied with boxing up the past and making room for what's next to answer. While I'm in box mode, I figure I may as well pick up Tom's ashes before my meeting with the new boss. It'll save me a trip across town. Monica is scheduled to watch the kids from noon until four anyway. She's simply a godsend. I hand off a baggie of milk, kiss my little dumplings goodbye, and drive over to the mortuary. I bounce up the front steps, ring the bell, and the same man in the same dark suit as a week ago, to the hour, answers. I'm here to pick up the ashes, I say. Oh, yes, Uh, your husband, right? He says, tapping his temple, like he's working hard to connect my face with the body he has had in the fridge. And here I thought I was the only person picking up their loved one's ashes. I'm sorry, I meant Thomas Sanchez, I say. He invites me in and then disappears for a few minutes, returning with a white cardboard box, no bigger than a shoebox, in fact, smaller, way too small to contain my Tom. He hands it to me. I'm fine until I feel the weight of it in the label. It reads Thomas Sanchez. It's all I can do not to double over. My smile quivers and breaks. I turn away quickly, letting myself out the door and into the street. An oncoming car screeches to a halt just inches from me, assaulting me with its horn. I hug the box tom to my chest and stumble forward, edging along park cars until I find a silver Volvo wagon through a haze of tears. Ducking inside, I buckle Tom's box into the passenger seat. You're too damn small, I tell it, and start laughing hysterically until my mascara smudges and my abs hurt. Okay, okay, stop. But I can't. The meeting begins in 15 minutes, and I'm ready to check into Garden Pavilion. Job! 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 I chant incessantly as I drive, leaving no room for anything else. In the parking lot, I use a baby wipe to clear the black rings from under my eyes, and it leaves behind the smell of a new mom. Not the best fragrance for perceived professionalism. Carol meets me in the hall and looks apologetic. Hi, Jennifer. Come on in. How about welcome back? Oh, no, I think. The lump already lodged in my throat is just one thought away from busting. We enter the office of the new boss. She leans in and introduces herself from across the desk. Her hand is doughy and her hair overstyled. As a matter of fact, her breath is bad, and there isn't a scrap of good I can say about her, knowing what she is about to do. "'I'm so sorry to hear of your recent loss,' she begins. The lump teeters. I nodded back. "'As you know, many changes have taken place here since you left. One of them is the move from per diem social work. We have full-time employees covering social services now.' Pause. "'I'm sorry,' she says, frowning and smiling simultaneously. Meanwhile, bosswoman Carol is wincing, and my throat lump is threatening to explode into wails of laughter or tears. I can't tell which. Job, job, job!' A tedious silence passes before the threat subsides enough to move language around the lump. "'I see. Is there another position available?' I ask, trying not to sound desperate, when I am. In the minutes that have elapsed since I've learned I no longer have this job, I've already tallied my income from the art therapy job and the internship, added estimated social security benefits, and come out negative against living expenses and unpaid medical bills. Moving to Maine is the only way I can make it, and I'm not ready to move that far from my life with Tom. I need this job. She looks surprised. "'Possibly there is a position in the outreach program. It would be a fifty percent pay cut. If you're interested, you're welcome to apply.' "'I'll think about it.' I stand and shake her hand, squeezing through the dough in search of something of substance. "'Thanks.' For the second time today, I turn quickly and let myself out of a building before I explode into public grief. Thank God for cars. On the way home, I pull over and talk to Tom's box. What a bitch, huh? Can you believe that bullshit? He's with me on this one. I can almost see him rise up out of the box like a genie, sit beside me, and shake his head with vigorous empathy. At home, I enter with Boxo Tom in tow and collapse onto the couch. Residuals of the lump spill forth. "'What is it, Jen?' Monica asks. River pushes his way to the front lines. "'What, Mama? What? Why are you crying?' As far as he's concerned, we're past the sad part about Daddy dying. I want to tell Monica that I lost my job, that I'm already failing as a single parent, and that the body I've made love to for years and that gave me two children can't possibly be contained in this box. But words snag on new rounds of grief with every attempt to speak. Instead, I hold out the box. She read her brother's name aloud, and it hits her like it had me, straight in the gut. River grabs at the culprit of all the upset. What is it? he asks. These are the ashes. Deep breath. From Daddy's body, I tell him between sobs. I want to see Daddy, he booms, trying to pry the top open. Monica and I cry harder at this. No river. Daddy isn't Daddy anymore. Just ashes. Here, I'll show you. I'm irritated at my three-year-old's wonder of how Daddy fits in a shoebox, when really I'm just as confounded as he is. Inside the cardboard box is an even smaller plastic box. Carefully, I pry open the lid, not sure I really want to know what Tom looks like in ash form. Inside is a clear bag sealed with a twist tie and full of fine white powder mixed with a few shards of bone. See? I hold up the bag. That's all that's left of Daddy. River looks bewildered, like he knows what's left of his Daddy and this bag of stuff has nothing to do with it. No questions follow, and I don't think it's because I'd already given him the cremation spiel. Throughout the evening he inadvertently pushes matchbox cars up the legs of the coffee table parks them at the black box, and peeks inside. When he isn't looking, I do the same, only without the cars. Change really floors me sometimes. This has been read to you by the author, Jennifer Allen. Copyright 2009.